Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning as we continue our series on the foundations of our faith. And as you turn there, I do want to just give you a brief update on one of the things that was mentioned in prayer. Um, If I look a little jet-lagged, I am. (laughs) Um, We just came from Tijuana, Mexico uh, this week with a few of our young people uh, who are uh, praying about uh, training for uh, missions advance uh, to the unreached people groups of the world. I think the more technical term would be language groups. There's about 1,011 language groups uh, left on the face of the planet that yet to have the gospel preached in their own language. They've never heard the name Jesus. And we're excited as a church maybe about the opportunity of one day seeing people from here go there. Not just places where Jesus has already been preached, but we're talking places where they would have to learn a primary language and then learn a secondary language. And so we're visiting the school to see if it would indeed be a good place for future training for that. And um, if you want my consensus, I say yes, this would be a great option for us. But it was a, a great time. Enjoyed the fellowship. Enjoyed spending time with those young people. But I'm happy to be back uh, in Florida for sure. <laughs> Galatians 2, our study today will actually be as the bulletin states, uh, verses 15 to 21, uh, but for reasons you'll understand later, I'm actually going to start at verse 14 and read all the way down to chapter 3, verse 3. Let's read together. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Peace 
said Albert Einstein, cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. Peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. Peace is indeed one of the great cries of our heart. We long to have settledness. We want to know that things are good. And believe it or not, even though this church is anything but a prosperity gospel type of ministry, it is our heart that all who attend here and gather here would indeed know peace continually. It's hard for me to even convey that. I don't even know how to convince you, but I just want you to know that like, it would be my greatest joy for everyone to walk out of this room today at peace. There's three main arenas that affect our peace. One of them is, as Einstein would say, understanding of purpose. The other is understanding of, of people, relationships. And I think in many ways, understanding of place or context. If you don't know what you're doing with your life, if you don't feel like you're actually on track to do that which would please God, it could be an unsettling thing. Uh, if you hate where you live and you hate what you do, naturally the, the peace index is low. But one of the most surefire influencers of our peace is people, relationships. You could live in the perfect home and you could have the perfect job, but if you're off with the people around you, it affects your peace. It's interesting. I was trying to do research on this uh, in preparation for uh, this sermon this week, and if you look online about peace and its relationship, I mean, its effect upon relationships, you can't, you can't actually find anything, interestingly, that talks about relationships affecting peace. Everything talks about peace or stress affecting relationships. But I think all of us know sometimes it is actually relationships being off that cause us such duress. It isn't just the duress that causes things to go awry in the relationship. And so it's a significant factor for us this morning. Are your relationships good? Or, or, or things like, are you at peace with those around you? And even more important than those horizontal aspects of peace, you would naturally expect me to include as well. Vertical peace. Not just horizontal relationships, but vertical relationships. I would ask you now just to assess within your own heart, are things good with you and God? Are things right? Now, I know, I know that you know that like because of what Christ has done, yes, in the, Christ has taken care of everything in the past, and yeah, things have been made right with God uh, to some degree, but I'm asking about your experience of that. Like right now, in your relationship with God, are, are things uh, where they need to be? Uh, when you look at your, your actions and your attitudes from the previous week, uh, are, are you feeling like, you know, sitting in the service this morning, like, yeah, yeah, we're good. 
I can do that with my, my wife. I can get a feeling of like where I'm at. I don't, I don't have any tangible way to measure it, but I, you know, there's some times where I know like, yeah, we're really good right now. Sometimes we're not. I'm asking you about that in your relationship with the Lord. Do you feel like things are good? Do you think that He is pleased with you? Now, is there anything that as you look ahead to the week to come, you're like, hey, you know, I need to make some adjustments. I think He'd be more pleased. I want you to understand, friends, that, that Paul shares this concern for our peace. He, he wants our relationship with God to be something that is actually settled, firm, established, enjoyable. Enjoyable. That means something from which you get joy. He wants that for you. He wants that for all that he ministered to, to the degree that in this particular epistle, he will literally, well, not literally, figuratively, declare war on a certain contingent of people. I mean, he uses some of the strongest language in this particular uh, book of the Bible than he does anywhere else. I mean, if you look in chapter uh, 1, uh, verse 8, for example, like he's going to say uh, in this, if I, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. That's a very polite way of saying, let him be damned. I mean, he's on the war path. He thinks that heaven and hell are at stake here over what? Peace with God. Some people had infiltrated the church that had begun to upset uh, the Galatian believers' understanding of their relationship with God. He wanted them to be at peace with God. He wanted them to know that things were right. But a group of people came in, and they just began to, to plant a little bit of doubt, just a little bit of doubt as to whether or not things are actually right with God. Now, you could listen to that and say, really? He's going to declare war over somebody just asking some maybe some safe questions, you know, causing people to just, you know, re-examine whether or not they're actually right with God? Yes, absolutely. Paul didn't want anyone to upset their understanding, the God-given understanding of what it means to be fully and finally right with him. So he tells this story to start off his uh, attack. He tells a story about how he became an apostle, about how God called him in a special way. He had uh, this authority from the Lord Jesus himself. And then he tells us this story, interestingly, which is why I read verse 14, in which he would actually, over this very concern, confront the apostle Peter of all people to his face in front of a crowd. Basically, the way it had gone down is that Peter was in the church in Antioch, which was kind of like uh, the, the capital of Gentile Christianity at the time. And Paul showed up, and he had noticed while Peter was there, he was acting just like a normal Christian would, uh, someone who had been liberated from Jewish legal customs. So uh, Peter presumably is enjoying a BLT from time to time. He is actually participating and eating uh, dinner with these other Gentiles, and he's had no problem. I and mean, he just kind of fits in. It looks like, hey, there's actually one body of Christ. But then this little element from the church in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish capital of Christianity, comes for a visit. And all of a sudden, Peter, who we would not even think would be this kind of way, is intimidated. 
He reverts to something. He reverts back to his Jewishness to the degree, listen to this, that he will not eat barbecue with these people anymore. In fact, he won't even sit at the same table with them. And Paul thinks something's up, something's off. And I've got to confront this. And although Peter never said a word, his action spoke loudly enough. Peter clearly has a misunderstanding of what it means to be truly accepted by God. Peter's actions were implying that Gentiles were not fully right with God and therefore needed to be put into a different category because they weren't following Old Testament law. Peter's actions were implying that believing in Jesus wasn't enough for them to be fully right with God. Now, he had diminished them to some kind of second-class status uh, in which the, the super elite, the super right with God are those who believe in Jesus and keep Old Testament law. And the Gentiles, they're second category right with God. They're, they're a little less right with God because they do believe in Jesus. Yes, we'll give them that check mark. But yeah, they're not following the Old Testament law, so that's a concern. You know why Paul is actually so concerned about this? It's not because Peter was having a negative influence on the church in Galatia. It's because another group of people had come in and they were teaching the same thing. What Peter taught with his life, another group had come in and taught with their lips. In the text, it's called the circumcision party. What a horrible name. <laughs> of all the things to be known for. <laughs> We've talked about this circumcision party back in the book of Philippians chapter 3. We called them Judaizers. Uh, these were guys that would actually believe like you and I believe insofar as they would say, hey, if someone's going to be right with God, they just simply need to believe or trust in Jesus. But you know what else they did? They said, just to make sure all our bases are covered, uh, let's also make sure that we're keeping Old Testament law as well, especially circumcision. So righteousness with God, yeah, sure, it comes through faith in Christ, plus circumcision, plus uh, Jewish legal observances. And so that now we're going to mix these two things together. And Paul says, that's damnable. This is dangerous. So you see why he confronted Peter? He's telling this story. He said, look, Peter, and Galatians listening in on this confrontation, you don't mix law and grace. Why? Because you get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 that we read. He immediately turns it to the Galatians. He said, whoever comes to you, do not let them ever, ever mix law and grace. And so he gives us in these few verses what is literally the most important paragraph in the book of Galatians to say, all right, you want to know what it means to have peace with God? You want to know what it's like to be right with God? You want to stay away from the wrong way of righteousness, but stick to the right way of being righteous? So I'm going to argue that righteousness with God comes through Christ alone. I'm going to argue that righteousness with God comes from Christ alone, and he gives us three proofs that help with that. Your righteousness with God, not just in the past, not just in the future, but right now, sitting in that chair, is dependent upon Christ alone. Admittedly, friends, uh, I'm, I'm relieved uh, to say that uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, would even write in one of his epistles that Paul is at times hard to understand. 
Uh, if you've read the text earlier with me actively and you're thinking, I don't really know what that's saying. I was with you about four days ago. <laughs> Uh, this is complex. So I'm going to organize this around these three proofs. I think if you just can, can think of these proofs of righteousness uh, with God being through Christ alone, you'll be able to best understand this text and even explain it to others. There is the proof of acceptance in verses 15 to 16. There is the proof of amb- from ambivalence in verses 17 to 18. And then the proof from absoluteness in verses 19 to 21. Acceptance, ambivalence, and absoluteness. I'm only previewing this for you because, indeed, this is, as Peter would say, uh, hard to understand. So Paul is proving that righteousness with God comes through Christ alone, nothing else. There is no adding a few other things just to make sure our bases are covered. He's saying it has to be through Christ alone. And first of all, he proves this from acceptance. Acceptance. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. He says, We ourselves, notice that emphasis on we, us, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we, us, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, us, together, also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, what Paul is doing here is proving that this doctrine of somebody being right with God through Jesus alone has, has been accepted by all those who have been authenticated and officially validated by God as someone who would know what they're talking about. Notice the contrast between we ourselves and, and then it's almost like ironically he includes this little phrase, Gentile sinners, <laughs> Uh, Jews had this, this natural tendency to look at those who were outside of the genealogical covenant family of God as those who don't really know what they're talking about. And they had every right to do so. I know that should offend every one of you in the room who aren't Jewish. Don't worry, I'm offended too. But Paul, I mean, Paul just acknowledges, like, they have advantages. There are some things about being Jewish that, that put them on unequal footing with you. And I know Americans hate to hear that. But Paul acknowledges it here. By nature and by knowledge, the Jew had an advantage. And the point is that you should listen to what a Jewish person would have to say about God and His law because they had special access to it. God had given them a special promise Uh, that they would be His chosen covenant people. And listen to this, more than special promise, God had disclosed to them special revelation. Special revelation. There are certain things we learn about God just by looking around. Deduction. But there are certain things that we learn about God that He must show us. And the Jewish people were shown some specific things about God that the rest of us don't know. And you know what those special things were? It was summarized in this one word that we know as law. Torah would be the Hebrew word. Instruction. God gave His law. God gave His instruction to the Jewish people. He didn't show everybody everywhere everything that He intended for them to do. He didn't show them the clear picture of what a righteous person would look like, what the standards of behavior would be in God's eyes. He only did that for His special people. 
And so they had some advantages, naturally. And Paul is saying like, hey, the accepted message of those of us who were even in uh, the, the Jewish genealogy, we understand this to be the truth that we are justified by faith in Christ and nothing else. Maybe an analogy would be helpful. I think that we would naturally understand, if you've ever seen uh, the movie, based on a true story, Cool Runnings, that a Swiss bobsledding team would know more about bobsledding than a Jamaican bobsledding team, correct? They're Swiss. Uh, They live in snow. They have mountains. Jamaicans, not as much. The Jews are the Swiss equivalent of God's understanding, I mean, their understanding of law. They, they had a certain nature, and they had a certain knowledge that had been passed down to them from generation to generation. And Paul's, I'm sorry to use this analogy, but it's the best thing I could think of. Paul's saying, like, look, I'm a Swede. I, I know how bobsledding works. I, I'm a Jew. I know how the law works. I know what God thinks. And we, as Jews, know and have believed that justification or being right with God is something that only Jesus Christ could do. This isn't some new thing, some novel thing. This, is something, this isn't something that the Gentiles invented so that they could slip into the family of God. This is what God has told us all. He's made this clear from the beginning, Peter, by implication, Galatians. So he's arguing from acceptance. He's saying, we've already accepted this. And what's so fascinating is he says the exact same thing three times, three different ways. He's he's going to say the same thing that basically we are made right with God through Christ alone in three different ways. He says it generally, and then personally, and then universally. Notice the general statement of being right with God. We are, excuse me, verse 16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He just says it. This is what we know. Generally speaking, we all know this to be true. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, hang with me, folks, for like, um, I don't know, four minutes. I've got to define three terms. If we don't define these three terms up front, nothing I'm going to say for the rest of this message will make a lick of sense. Uh, the first thing that we have to define is we know that a person is not justified. Justified. What do we mean by justified? Um, justified uh, is, it, this word occurs five or six times in this particular text. It, it just means uh, to be right with God. To be right with God. Uh, you know the word righteousness? You see it in the Bible sometimes? It's the same word. Justified, righteous, righteousness, justification, it's all the same word. In our American context, you know what we normally think of? We think of justice as something that happens on a societal level, and we think of righteousness as something that somebody is morally. Uh, you gotta, like, you got to check your American instincts for a moment and let the Bible define its terms. The Bible doesn't differentiate. It, justice and righteousness mean the exact same thing. It means to be made right. Uh, for those of you who ever took, I'm not kidding, I'm this old. Uh, somebody actually had to teach me how to type on a keyboard. I took a keyboarding class. <laughs> and I remember like there was um, these, these three categories, you know, of like alignment. There was left, and there was right, uh, and there was justified. 
Do you remember what justified was? It's when it lines up on both sides. It's straightened out. It's exactly what the text is saying. God is saying that, all right, if you want to be right, if you want to be in line with me, you'll do it through faith alone and Christ alone. Now, to be clear, because uh, some people, namely the Roman Catholic Church, have made this a kind of confusing concept. When I say right with God, I mean by position being made right with God. He's saying things are good between you and me relationally. It's not saying that you are going to be totally right, like in your substance, in who you are. Although I may be justified, I'm in right standing with God, I'm messed up, folks. <laughs> like, I do wrong stuff, out of line things all the time. He's not talking about substance. He's talking about standing. You get the difference between the two? It's not dynamic righteousness like, oh, I'm now a different person inwardly than I used to be. It is declared righteousness. It is God looks at me differently than he did before. So righteousness, you got to know what that is. Uh, basically, but God looks at you and he says, hey, we're good. We're good. Things are good between me and you. You are in the right you're legally declared not guilty. But the other thing that he mentions here is not just righteousness, but he says, or justified, same word, by works of the law. What are the works of the law? Well, I can make this a lot shorter. Basically, all the stuff that the Old Testament commanded you to do. He says, you do all that stuff in the Old Testament, and guess what? It will not make you righteous. You cannot be righteous that way. So if we cannot be righteous by doing all the stuff that the Old Testament told us to do, including ceremonial things, including moral things, like, well, how do we do it? He says, there's only one way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith means to depend upon or trust in Jesus. That's why I like in two of the songs that we sang today, uh, it actually used a term that's not here, but I like it. We cling to Christ. Uh, we hold on to Him. We're, we're like depending upon Him for this righteousness. And so Paul says, generally speaking, guess what? Uh, we as Jews, we who know about God and what He thinks, we all have believed uh, that this justification doesn't come through anything we do, generally. And then he says it not only generally, but he adds another one. Second time, he's going to say the same thing personally. Personally, look at the text again. He says, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Notice that. We also is emphatic. He's saying, hey, Peter, me and you personally, we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. Why? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He's even more clear. And then he's going to say the same thing again, third time, but this time he speaks universally, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. He's actually here quoting Psalm 143 too, which is interesting because he's saying even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God knew that there was no way you could ever obey your way into alignment with what God thinks of you. Like you could never fix yourself. It's like warped wood. You ever try to straighten that out? <laughs> he said, you are fundamentally messed up. You are out of alignment, and you can't work at that thing long enough to straighten it out. No one can be justified by the works of the law. No one can be justified by their effort. 
And the whole point of these few little verses is just to say, hey, Peter and Galatians, this is standard operating procedure. For those of you who work in a company, it's called an SOP, right? This is, this is what everybody does. This is what we know to be true. This is, this is not something novel. This is not something new. Uh, this is something that has been around from the very beginning. Peter, you're off. And Galatians, by implication, you will be off as well if you step out of line here. This is the way that God has set it from the beginning. And so we would do well to remember, friends, that this is the accepted teaching of the church, not just the the Jews who were Christians, but this is what God has said from the very beginning. Paul says this is so fundamental. This is such a big deal. Uh, this, This whole notion or this temptation, this tendency that we have to add things uh, to make sure that we're covered, you know, like we know that Jesus does a lot, but we got to at least do our part. That tendency has been around for a long time, and so Paul is saying you always have to get back to this truth. There was, a, there was this guy, I think it was a youth pastor when I was growing up, I remember this, um, he, would, he would sometimes, in jest, in jest, uh, he would actually, um, like if he was going to do something risky, <laughs> uh, as youth pastors try to do uh, from time to time to win credibility from teenagers, uh, he, he would cross himself and then say, just in case they're right. <laughs> you know, I, I think we know that, like, I knew that that guy, like, didn't really mean that. But I think we do kind of have this tendency from time to time to do something that says, okay, well, just in case. I need a backup plan. Okay, I know that Jesus, yeah, I'm, I'm trusting Jesus, but just in case he's looking for a little more, I'm going to own my part of this. I, I want to try to, to like, do my part. And, and sometimes, the, you know, the just-in-case could be uh, financial. If you've ever watched more than three hours of the Trinity Broadcasting Network, I'm sure at some point you heard somebody say, yeah, believe in Jesus, uh, trust in Jesus, and just in case, send us your seed money. It can happen in, in fundamentalist legalistic context. Nobody would ever say that you shouldn't trust in Jesus, but they would say, but make sure, make sure, you know, if you really want to make sure things are good this week, that you've read your Bible seven times a day and that you've prayed before meals and that you've shown up to church. And, and I know it's going to sound like I'm picking on, on people because this will be the second week in a row in which I've done this, but I, I'm compelled. I would feel unfaithful if I didn't say this. Uh, friends, we need to be uh, ultra aware, especially if you have friends that are involved in the Roman Catholic Church, that this is the doctrine of Rome. That, yeah, you believe in Jesus. You talk to a Roman Catholic friend, you would know this if you grew up Roman Catholic. Of course you believe in Jesus. But you know what else you need, just in case? The seven sacraments. Because that's your backup plan. That's going to infuse extra grace I mean, this is no accident. I even just tried to look this week to make sure that I wasn't off. And so, this is official wording. Baptism uh, is important because it grants someone the Holy Spirit. And from that point, uh, they they walk out from their baptism, or or carried out, because some of them are babies. Uh, They have entered into their new life. Uh, Eucharist, or what we call communion, 
they see it uh, as more important. They do it every time they gather because they see it as an essential way of sustaining their relationship with God. Are you hearing me? Not reflecting on their relationship with God. This sustains their relationship with God. Confirmation. When the, you know, they actually like lay hands on somebody and said basically they're an official part of the church. When the person lays hands on them, it is, the church is saying that this calls down the power and blessing of God. Are, are you getting what I'm saying? I could go through a few more, but the point is like it's a backup. It's a just in case Jesus wasn't enough. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not just a superfluous backup. It is something that compromises the gospel itself. If you do the just in case they're right type of mentality, you may not actually have a relationship with Jesus, period. It's all or nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. And so Paul argues this from acceptance. He says, we all know this. We all believe this. But He's also going to offer another proof. Look at verses 17 and 18. You'll see the proof from ambivalence. Ambivalence. Paul says we can't be indecisive about this. Somebody's got to be in the wrong. Look, look at verse 17. This is kind of tricky, but you'll, you'll, you'll be able to handle it. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, let's take this a phrase at a time. He, Paul's giving a hypothetical situation. He said, all right, let's assume, everybody, that we're all trying to be justified in Christ. We, we want to have our righteousness through Jesus alone. It's a first-class condition. We're assuming something to be true. And all of us in the room this morning should be able to say, yeah, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm seeking to be justified in Christ. And if in doing that, we are found to be sinners. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he could mean a few things, but I think the clearest thing would be for all of us to find justification in Christ, we've already given up on the idea that we're going to justify ourselves. So, guess what you have to do? Confess yourself to be a sinner. If you can't confess yourself to be a sinner, you will not be saved by Jesus. And so, Jesus puts us in what seems to be like a catch-22 of a situation because we want to be right with God, but guess what we have to say? We're not. And the Jews don't like that because they just think that you should just be right with God, period. Why would anybody ever acknowledge that they're not? That's why, by the way, the baptism of John was so significant because he was actually making people acknowledge that they weren't right with God. It was controversial. They were actually thinking at the time, like, yeah, we could just keep trying harder and doing better. And so in this particular context, guess what? It seems that the way that Christ has set up this justification thing is that everybody has to say they're a sinner. So... He's arguing then, does this mean that Christ is a servant of sin, that Christ is an agent of sin, that Christ is a promoter of sin? Like if the way that that Christ has laid out his plan for justification means that everybody has to acknowledge themselves to be sinners and thereby, by implication, give up on Old Testament law keeping, does that mean that Christ is somehow promoting sin? What I I could imagine is that what's going down at some like synagogue meeting is that the guys are like circling around after and like, do you hear this guy, Paul? He's, he's like preaching and he says that Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, is telling people that uh, they can be right with God by trusting in him, but not by doing Old Testament works. In fact, they have to confess that they're sinners and just own it. 
They have to just own that they're, that they're not right with God and give up on Old Testament law and trust in Jesus. This just seems like a hot mess. This Jesus guy seems like he's someone who is promoting sin because he's diminishing the role of the law for salvation. And Paul is saying, okay, I'll Let's go with your argument for a moment. Let's say, I'm assuming that righteousness comes through Jesus, uh, and that means that I have to confess myself to be a sinner. Does this then make Jesus an agent or promoter of sin? Meganoito. Greek. Absolutely not. No way. It's a really strong statement. I don't think that we have one in English that would show how strongly and vehemently Paul is trying to say no Maybe the best thing I can come up with is God, no. It's a prayer. Let it be absolutely not. So, how is Christ not an agent of sin? We'll look at verse 17, 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Um, the, the best way that I, I can help you understand this is that Paul is saying, like, look, Somebody's messed up here. Somebody has messed up. Somebody's a transgressor. Either the Jewish guys are transgressors or Jesus is a transgressor. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I am messed up. Now, I don't know how much you know about demolition, but I will say this. You better know that you're tearing down the right thing before you tear it down. No kidding. In recent days, I actually uh, read of a uh, house in Texas, this thing was 97 years old. And a demolition crew comes in, and they think that they're tearing down the right house, and they tore down the wrong house. You know how the guy found out about it? He's sitting in California because he owned the house from there, and he was going to do some major renovations on the house, and the guy shows up to do the renovations and says, hey, there's no house here. The guy got the address wrong. <laughs> I don't know how they reconciled this thing, but the demolition guy said, I've been doing this for 35 years. This has never happened. I should certainly hope not. <laughs> With that in mind, Paul's saying, hey, if somebody's rebuilding something that they tore down, somebody's messed up. What was it that, that Paul would have been... Uh, rebuilding hypothetically if he would have bought into that mindset, the thing that he tore down. What did he tear down? Well, let me give you an analogy. Let's, 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 let's use some houses. You know, we give, we give houses names from time to time that mean something more than they really are. Think of the White House. All right, so I'm, I'm going to give you two houses. Uh, one of them is going to be called the Law House. The other is going to be called the Grace House. Uh, basically, what Paul is saying is uh, we used to live and operate within the law house, and because of Christ and what he said, we tore that thing down. That was no longer a viable means uh, to actually enjoy uh, favor with God. In fact, it never was, only because of a misunderstanding. It, it needed to be torn down because Christ built a new house. He called it the Grace House, and this is what I've gone to. But this is what he says. If I go and I leave Grace House, then I go back to Law House, and I try to build it back up again as a viable means of somebody enjoying rightness with God, what am I showing? I'm in the wrong I messed up. I am a transgressor. Because the foreman, Jesus, said that house is condemned. Grace is how people will enjoy rightness with me now. 
Paul speaks with I, but he's talking of Peter and these other uh, Galatian uh, incipients, these people who had made their way in and said, look, if you go back and you try to rebuild this thing again, you are directly defying the order of the foreman. You have torn down the wrong house, or you're living in the wrong house. You are actually existing in in something that has already been condemned And the point is, there is no ambivalence. There's only one foreman. There's only one house to be torn down. There's only one house to live in. We live in grace. We cannot be ambivalent about this. And so Paul argues. He argues from acceptance. He argues from ambivalence. He's saying, which authority will you listen to? Like, whose whose directions am I going to listen to? Am I going to listen to you guys, you Judaizers, or am I going to listen to what Jesus said? Because he made it clear that grace would only be enjoyed through him and not through my own efforts and works. And then the third proof is the proof from absoluteness. Acceptance, ambivalence, ambivalence, absoluteness. Look at Verse 19, Paul's going to detail a little more what the destruction of this law house was like. He says, why, excuse me, uh, verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And in the Greek text, interestingly, this next sentence actually belongs to verse 19. I have been crucified with Christ. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. What is he talking about here? He's saying that guess what the law did for me? Guess what, what trying to obey God's standards of righteousness did for me? It killed me. I died. I died through the law. How do you die through the law? Uh, you recognize in trying to do it that you can't do it and that you deserve to die. You know what the penalty for disobeying the law was in the Old Testament? I assure you it wasn't a slap on the hand. It was death. And Paul said, look, the law did its work in me, and you know what it did? It showed me that I deserved to die. And then he says something very controversial, and I did die. It killed me. It killed me so that I might live to God. What does it mean that it killed me? How did he die? That's why he adds this next phrase. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul wasn't there at the crucifixion that we know of. In what way was he crucified with Christ? Whatever Christ did counted for him. Whatever Christ did counted for him. So Paul deserved to die. And guess what? He really did die because Christ did indeed die on his behalf. He's saying, yeah, the law did its job. It killed me. The old me is dead because Christ died for me in that way. And at the same time, something else took its place. Continue reading in verse 21, or excuse me, in verse, yeah, uh, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's saying, the old me is dead. I'm not, that, that part of me is not alive anymore. The one that tried to obey, I couldn't obey. It died. But Christ is the one who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
You see, he's saying, I live now in the house of grace because of my identification with Christ, that the penalty has been paid, and at the same time, the righteous life has been provided, the one that I could never provide on my own. Christ has given that to me. It's all because of what Christ has done, not because of what I have done. There is nothing I could possibly do that would make me right with God. Christ must do it all. Friends, we struggle with this. We struggle with this because we think that we should get what we deserve. Just two days ago, we're standing at the border trying to get out of Mexico back into San Diego. And I have no idea what was going on in the United States at the time. But something caused some kind of panic at the border where the, the lines were um, twice as long as they normally are. And so anyway, we're standing in this really long line, um, and all of a sudden, this dude, uh, like, I just look up, and he broke in line. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, well, I just paid this guy so I could break in line. I'm like, well, you didn't pay me, you know, like, <laughs> 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 anyway, um, Faith, Faith Tunnison and I started talking to him, and we were like, so what were you doing in Mexico? He's like, I just, I needed to, to come get away from all those American rules for a while. I'm like, oh. He's like, yeah, and I, I needed to get some stuff. I sell some things back in the United States and that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. So he says, so what do you guys do? And we're quite a motley crew. Um, it was uh, one person is in uh, health administration, uh, the other person was a pastor, the other person was a farmer, and the other person was a nanny. <laughs> it's like, what are y'all doing together, you know? But when he hears the pastor thing, all of a sudden his, his, his tone changes. So he'd just been telling me about how much he enjoyed the lack of rules in Mexico and how he's going to like, be having a good time in Los Angeles when he gets back, and now all of a sudden he's a Christian. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not only is he a Christian, but he's also a lawyer, interestingly. He does family law. Um, so we, I mean, again, long line, long conversation. It was great. It was great. I enjoyed it. It was good teamwork. So we start talking to him about the gospel, and he's really concerned. He's really concerned about the, uh, the times that he quote-unquote messes up. He's like, what do I do about these mess-ups? What do I do about these accidents? And I'm trying to tell him those aren't accidents, they're called sin, but he just, you know, kept calling them accidents. And this is what he actually tried to argue. He said, look, I understand the legal system. He says, I, I, I think that, I know that God has to do what's right, but wouldn't it make sense if God was lenient? Like, you know, if y'all, you know, like we're saying, because he claimed to be a Christian at this point, if God's a nice guy, um, like why, why wouldn't, you know, like when I mess up, won't he overlook certain things? And I've trying to help him understand it. He's not judging you on the basis of your performance. Like, he couldn't get that through his mind. He, he could only see what he had done. And I tried to argue, because I've been studying this passage all week. I'm like, no, no, it doesn't matter what you did. You're not going to be judged by your works, but if you're trusting in Christ, you'll be judged by his works. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. But I still mess up. What about that? And I'm like, no, 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 you're not getting it. You're looking at the wrong person. Stop looking at yourself. Start looking at the substitute, the one who stands in your place. What Paul is saying here is that the substitute did it all. He paid for it. He, he already died for you, and he lives for you. The whole list, 
All of it. He's accomplished that. Like, God looks at us, and He sees us through the shed blood of His Son, and He sees us as the one who has accomplished the perfect righteousness that His Son has accomplished. Like, it's different. It's not that as soon as you start thinking that you have something to do with it, Paul is actually saying you are outside of grace. It isn't just an innocent mistake. It is the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. And so it is a matter of absoluteness to such a degree that Paul would conclude it by saying this. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You know what nullify means? It means to render it void, to make it ineffective. Paul is saying, listen, I don't nullify the grace of God. You know what the implication is? That somebody could hypothetically nullify the grace of God, just make it nothing. You want to know how to nullify the all-consuming, all-powerful grace of God? Add your two cents to it. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Because on this basis, he says, if righteousness, being right with God, being declared right with God, standing in in right standing with Him, justified, if that were through the law, through doing stuff, then Christ died for no purpose. You got to think about it, right? If there was another way to do this, why would God have sent His Son? If there were another way to do this, why would God have sent His Son? What He's saying is like, all right, if you're saying that there's something else we can do, that there was a plan B, God erroneously went through a plan A to execute His Son? It's absolute. It's exclusive. There's no other way. And so it leaves us asking ourselves this question, friends. The good stuff that you do. I assume you've done some good things this week, right? Those good things that you do. Were they done for righteousness or from righteousness? Can you see the difference? Did you do the good stuff that you did this past week because you wanted God to be pleased with you? Or was it because you know that He already was? Was it a matter of guilt or gratitude? I guess would be another way to say it. It'd be an interesting exercise. I actually did it myself. I'd encourage you to do the same. Write down some of the good things you did last week. The stuff that you know that God would have given you the proverbial thumbs up for, and then ask yourself, what was I doing that for? Was it to get into His grace, or was it an expression of the fact that I already enjoy it? I've been impressed, church family, as I've worked together on this um, series on foundations of the faith, just so you're aware, when this isn't me like making up stuff like, hmm, I think I want to talk about justification this week or, hey, let's talk about faith this week. (laughs) Uh, The way that I've done this with the elders' input is I've looked at several historical confessions of faith, uh, a bunch of smart, wise people in times past who have put together key doctrines that they thought that people needed to know. 
Uh, one of the ones that we've relied uh, the most upon is Baptistic in its origin. It's called the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. It was first published in 1833. What is so interesting to me is how much people in times past thought clarity on these different facets of the gospel, uh, how important these things were for everyday believers. They actually intended in writing these confessions that everybody in the church would be able to argue for these things. There's a difference between a confessional statement and a doctrinal statement. A doctrinal statement says, hey, this is what the guys up front teach. You need to be aware of this. You know what a confessional statement says? This is what you need to be able to confess. This is what you need to be able to defend. So what's blowing me away is like, it'd be tempting to think like, oh, well, we just covered like last week the way of salvation being Jesus. What in the world is he doing talking about justification this week? (laughs) It's important. In fact, it would be uh, Luther himself who would make uh, this strong statement, if the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. It's pretty strong. If the, the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. He's saying, and I don't know that I've fully agree, but I mostly agree that like if this is if this one thing's off, like we've lost the whole thing. Christianity is done for. But friends, this isn't just big for Christianity. It is big for the Christian. <laughs> I don't want you to think about the movement. I don't want you to think about uh, the global phenomenon that is Christianity. I want you to think about your own soul for a moment. What does this mean for you? Because it would be easy for for someone to criticize, and I think I could do it myself and be like, dude, do you know what I've been doing this week? Why in the world are you hitting something that I have known my whole life? Maybe your sentiment lines up with that of uh, the Duke George of Saxony. He responded to Luther's comment about justification being so important and said, Look, this doctrine of justification is, and I'm quoting here, a great doctrine to die by, but a lousy one to live with. It's a great doctrine to die by, but a lousy one to live with. It'd be easy for you to think, you know what, Justin, justification, that's what happens at the end. I will be right with God. What does it have to do with me today? And yet, I would say to you with everything within me, it has everything to do with you right now. Do you understand? And here's, I told you I would tell you. Here's why I continued reading into verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. Paul is not concerned about their past He's not concerned about whether or not they thought they at one point were made right with God. He is concerned about their present, right now. Right now. This is why he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, that's past, right? But notice this one. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? (laughs) Notice how he switches from the past to the present. He is talking about right now. Like Whether or not you feel right with God in this very moment, like that is his ultimate concern. 
And so, friends, this isn't just some hypothetical thing. It has everything to do with your, your present, like where we are in this moment. And that is why we must understand that righteousness with God isn't just a past thing. It isn't just a future thing. It is a present thing, not because of what we did or did not do this week, but because of what Christ has done for us. You say, I, I don't know if I buy in. Well, the Galatians didn't really know at first if they bought in either, which is why Paul would give these arguments, these proofs. There's that, that proof from acceptance. This is what the church has always believed. This is what even we as Jews have known to be true from the beginning. There's that proof from ambivalence. We've got to listen to one foreman or the other, and I think we're going to go with Jesus. And then he says, there's the proof of absoluteness. It is all or nothing. If you believe anything else than Jesus died in vain. I would say to you this week, as we try to think through these present tense understandings of what it means to be right with God, that we would do uh, one of three things here. Uh, The first would be that we would apply this doctrine of justification if we have not yet already. If you live, listen to me carefully, please, if you're visiting today, if you live with this gnawing sense of insufficiency, not knowing if you've been right with God, I don't care what stuff you've done in the past, what religious involvement you may have or not have, uh, what ultimately matters is are you right with God now? How do we know if we can be right with God now? It is simply through depending upon Christ to make you right with Him. He lived the righteous life that you never could. He died to pay the penalty that you deserve to die. He intercedes on your behalf if you are, as the songs say, clinging to him. You need to apply this. You need to embrace this. Some of you, dear saints, and I say this, I'm concerned. I said I'm concerned for your happiness. I'm concerned for your joy. I'm concerned for your peace. And I'm not thinking you're going to find it by praying for another stimulus check. <laughs> Pray that you would embrace this because you're, you're, you're so bothered by the ways that you feel like you're disappointing the Lord. And I want you to know that like, He is not disappointed. He looks at you, can you think of this for a moment, with delight. You know all the junk that you did this week, the ways that you have blown it, and He is still pleased. You're like, that sounds crazy. Oh, I know it does. I know it does. And yet, that's the truth. And it is only when you accept the way that he looks at you now through Christ that you would ever be able to actively change anything in your life that you want to change. Grace precedes growth. And then finally, if you applied this and you are embracing this, my encouragement would be that you would defend this. You would defend this. Friends, Paul went all out on making sure that no one was deceived in this way. Can I give you just a a little exercise that I think would help you defend this with other people who may not know it? Just ask them this question. I've I've asked you this before. Heads up, it's a trick question. But I would encourage you to employ this trick question with someone else. Are you ready? On a scale of 1 to 10, how right are you with God? On a scale of 1 to 10, how right are you with God? Because what I've done there is 
of giving a sliding scale answer, I mean a proposition to a binary answer. It's either a 10 or a zero. <laughs> there is no eight, nine, seven. You're either all in or you're all out. And I think with that question, you could then explain, maybe from texts like this one or others, how you know it's all of grace in Christ. We should be defending this. And not just with Roman Catholic friends who may be deceived, but so many others who are burdened by that weight of guilt because of their own lack of personal performance. I wish that young man that we spent that time with in line could see and know and understand. Faith ended up giving him her Bible. Uh, Savannah and Noah prayed. I invited him to a church that I knew in Los Angeles where he lived. That's the best we can do. But the truth is that at the end of the day, all of us are defending this. We're defending salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And here's how I think we can close. I think it, we do well to, to just finish our time with contemplation afresh of the insufficiency of the work of our hands. I, I just wanted you to, I will even let you use this as a guide if you, if you have one. You could just turn to that song that we sang right before uh, the message, and it was not what my hands have done. Just, just confess that silently, read through that, think about that. And then after we conclude the silence, this is what's going to happen. This will be fun. Let's close, instead of like looking at the insufficiency of our hands, I want us to close by looking up in joy at what has already been accomplished for us in Christ by singing before the throne of God above. You see the contrast? Let's meditate on our insufficiency. And then let's stand and sing out in praise for what has already been accomplished in Christ. Take a moment to do that. Musicians, you could go ahead and make your way up. And then we'll close this time of silence out by standing together and singing before the throne.